Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. Um, Next week, we'll be taking up a a five-week series on work and vocation and calling. And what does it mean to be a Christian who works? And how are we to go about our work life um, distinctively as Christians? Uh, This morning, we're wrapping up our extensive study of the book of Ephesians, and we're coming to the very end. And Throughout this book, throughout this letter, Paul has been describing a church that's in motion, a church that is navigating through the waters of their lives with love, with mission. And this morning, he changes the analogy, changes the imagery just a little bit. And this morning, instead of walking and moving, it's standing still. It's standing in something. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean to stand firm in the gospel, as a church as well as as individuals. But before we do so, would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful that we are here this morning, that you have invited all of us, no matter where we put ourselves on the spiritual spectrum, wherever we find ourselves, whatever truth we believe, whatever truth we follow, whatever has gone on in our lives this week, whether we have pursued life in you and with you and for you, or whether we've wandered very far away, we are grateful that you offer us your welcome, that you hold out your hand to to pick us up, to anoint us with your love and your favor, and as we just sang, everlasting grace that will never run out. Lord, I pray that as we wrap up our study of Ephesians, that nothing would be clearer than your grace that you offer us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we thank you for coming and submitting to our need. We pray that you would do so once again as we engage your truth. We pray in your name alone. Amen. Uh, Tina Fey, who is a Saturday Night Live comedian and also the star of of 30 Rock, wrote a, a very funny, engaging book a few years ago called Bossy Pants. And she talks about a lot of things, but she talks about the fear that are relate, the fears that she has related to her daughter uh, growing up. And she gives this imaginary prayer that's uh, a window into things that she worries about as it relates to her daughter's life. And she says of her daughter, may she be beautiful but not damaged, for it's the damage that draws the creepy soccer coach's eye, not the beauty. When the crystal meth is offered, may she remember the parents who cut her grapes in half and just guide her, protect her. When crossing the street, stepping on the boat, swimming in pools, walking near pools, standing on the subway platform, crossing 86th Street, using mall restrooms, getting on and off escalators, leaning on large windows, walking in parking lots, and standing on any kind of balcony ever, anywhere, at any age. Lead her away from acting, but not all the way to finance. Something where she can make her own hours, but still, still feel intellectually fulfilled, and get outside sometimes and not have to wear high heels. What would that be, Lord? Architecture? Midwifery? Golf course? I'm asking you because if I knew, I'd be doing it. Grant her a rough patch from 12 to 17. Let her draw horses and be interested in Barbies for much too long. Oh, Lord, break the internet forever, that she may be spared the misspelled invective of her peers. And should she choose to be a mother one day, be my eyes, Lord, that I may see her lying on a blanket on the floor at 4.50 a.m., 
all at once exhausted, bored, and in love with the little creature whose poop is leaking up its back. And as she cleans feces off her baby's neck, may she say, my mother did this for me once, and then think to come and visit. Don't we all wish this for our children? Don't we all have these fears and these anxieties about bringing someone into the world and knowing the world and envisioning them growing up in this world? And doesn't that great anxiety and great fear because we know instinctively that we can't control life? But don't we pray and hope that God would insulate them and insulate ourselves, our loved ones, our friends from all of the terrible things that we can imagine, from the things that we can't handle. And wherever we're coming from this morning, reality, whether we're a Christian or not, don't we all know that there are things that are out there that are overpowering, that we feel overmatched by? It's overwhelming. And last week we described what the Bible describes it as a personal supernatural evil, that there's an arsenal of spiritual forces that are aligned against us and against the church. But this week, as Paul wraps up his letter, we get to talk about the arsenal of the forces of good, the arsenal of the forces of Jesus that are aligned against the forces of evil and for us and for our good. We talked about the problem hinted at a solution last week, and now we're going to spend most of our time looking at a solution. Now, there's a lot of different prescriptions of what is wrong with the world and how to go about fixing it. Fixing it. I slipped into my southern, you know, uh, patois there for a moment. We say fixing. There's a lot of different ways that we describe uh, how to go about fixing what is evil in the world. One may be sociological, that all of our problems really are related to our conditioning, to our environment, to what's going on. At or maybe it's biological. What matters most about us, what contributes to the evil that is present in our world, how we act in evil ways sometimes, is really a matter of our DNA, of our, our chemistry. And so we propose medical, we propose perhaps pharmacological answers. Or maybe thirdly, there, there's spiritual answers to what's wrong with our world, that there's something spiritual going on behind what we see, behind the physical world, but it's sort of incomprehensible. It's beyond our power to fully define it, to fully relate to it, to fully connect to it or him. Well, who's right? Which of these three perspectives, these three descriptions of our world is right? What if they all have part of the truth, a sense of the truth, but not the whole truth? Christianity says that the problem with our world, and as we talked about last week, it is multidimensional, that there is something all-powerful that is aligned against what is good and ordered and lovely in our world. And so, therefore, we need an all-powerful, multidimensional, multifaceted approach to deal with what's going wrong in the world and in our own heart. Don't we know that, of course by the sort of family that we grow up in, the culture that we inhabit as we're growing up. Of course, we're conditioned by that. 
And of course, we have certain biological medical things that are true about us and may in fact be broken and may need medical intervention. In the spiritual world, we do know that God is in a sense incomprehensible if we're left to figure out pathways on our own to access Him, to understand Him, to get to Him. But what Paul says about God is that, yes, He is incomprehensible and all-powerful, and yet He has made Himself known. We're not left to ourselves from evil spirits or evil powers. In fact, He's granted us not only access to Him, not only knowledge about Him, but He's granted us, if you're a Christian, personal union with Him, with His power and His strength. Everything that is true of Jesus, whereby His strength can become yours. And therefore, Paul describes the answer to the problem. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Now think with me for a minute. If we're going to believe this, if we're going to follow this, if we're going to say, I'm going to be strong not in myself, but in another person, if we're going to apply this, don't we have to look around at our world and acknowledge what Tina Fey did? That in some way we are overmatched by our environment, by our biological problems, by the spiritual forces that are aligned against us. If we're going to live in this way, be strong in the Lord, don't we have to assess ourselves as being, in many ways, if not wholly, incompetent to deal with all that is wrong in our world and is wrong in ourselves, that we're overmatched in our daily lives? There's a powerful scene in the Coen Brothers film, the No Country for Old Men, and Sheriff Bell, which is one of the best names ever for a literary character, Ed Tom Bell. He makes his way up this long driveway, and he walks into a house that belongs apparently to an old friend. And it's this amazing scene that seems very discordant from the rest of the picture, because this person nor in this house, this scene never shows up again. It doesn't play any role except in this scene, which says to me that this must be important to the story. It seems so discordant that maybe it's a major chord. And it turns out that this man in the wheelchair that he has this conversation with is his uncle, who was also a lawman and was injured in the line of duty, was shot and crippled, and now lives in this very dirty home in a wheelchair. And really his only company is when Ed Tom comes to visit him. But it's him who gets thing that is most central to his life at that moment. You see, Sheriff Bell is quitting his job. He's giving up on his calling. He's giving up on this calling that has involved his whole family. And he recognizes, and the reason he's giving up his calling is that he recognizes that the evil surrounding him is more than he can do battle with. And he says in this scene that he feels overmatched. And therefore, he leaves. He resigns. It's a powerful scene because if we're going to be strong in the Lord, if we're going to be strong in Jesus and in His mighty power, we have to first admit that we're overmatched by 
our lives by what is aligned against us, by the problems that we have in our world. But there's something else. He says, put on the full armor of God. You see, we're not simply recognizing our own vulnerability, but we're becoming part of another story. And this is what Steve was hinting at or talking about in the confession time, that we're talking about citizenship here, that it's not just admitting our need and that we're vulnerable, but but that we are also taking up the armor of another person, that we're beginning to inhabit, we're being drafted, if you will, into a completely different story a completely different way of thinking about reality and where reality is headed. We're putting on the armor of another person. And Paul uses this imagery of foot soldiers who are dressed in the army of a very particular army. And when we sit down to watch the Super Bowl, we know that the guys that are wearing the blue and gray are the Seahawks and that the ones wearing the blue and orange are the Broncos, the bad guys. They're known by what they wear. You can identify them because of their armor, because of their helmets, because of their shoulder pads. You know what team they're playing on. It was the same way in ancient battles, that you wore the breastplate, the helmet, the sword and shield of a particular army. And if you looked out across a battlefield, you knew that this army was fighting for this king and that army was fighting for that king. You see, putting on the armor of God is not only taking up a different set of strategies or a different set of defenses, but it's aligning our purposes with another general. It's taking up residency in a completely different nation, a different citizenship. It means taking our orders from a different general. Now, we get a picture of this general and his strategies, and what he is about in the world through the Gospels. As we read through the Gospels, we see this picture of how he goes about life and how he invites his disciples into this other alternative countercultural narrative. And we get to learn what it would be like to be under his generalship, under his leadership. And one of the great ways, the great pictures of this is Jesus on the boat when the storm comes. Or maybe I should say the disciples on the boat when the storm comes. Jesus is teaching and he says, disciples, would you row me out across the lake to the other side? And he goes and takes a nap. And this furious storm comes upon the the boat. And this fear grips these disciples, some of whom were, were sailors, and they feel defenseless. And where is Jesus? Well, he's napping in the hold of the boat. He's sleeping. He's snoozing. Imagine Jesus maybe snoring down there while his people that he loves are up on top of the boat fearing for their life. And doesn't that sort of feel like the Christian life in general or like life in general sometimes? It's that I'm here on the deck of this life and I can't find my balance. And where is God? He seems to have left me to defend myself. But they say, I know Let's go wake Jesus. If he is the Lord of creation, the Lord of the earth, then let's wake him. And they say, Master, save us. And he says, where is your faith in Luke 8? Luke 8. Not chastising them for not having enough faith. Not why don't you have faith, but where 
is your faith? Where is your faith located? You see, he's not chastising them, chastising them for their amount of faith, but about the location of their faith. Their faith at that moment, as they're in, in dread, is in their sailing capacities, in hope that the storm maybe will die down. It's in their experience with previous storms, and maybe their skills at, at bailing the water out. But their panic shows that they feel overmatched. They have Jesus sleeping in the boat with them, their master, the Lord, and yet their panic, they're in utter despair because they feel overmatched by their situation. And what Jesus is saying is, friends, instead of being captive to your fears, it's okay to be afraid at times, that's part of the human condition, but instead of being captive to your fears, instead of being in utter panic, why didn't you just wake me up earlier? I'm here. I'm with you. I have the power to calm the storms. And here you are running all over the deck of the boat, doing everything you know in your own power. But isn't it obvious that you're overmatched? Therefore, Paul says here, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, that you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. This day of evil that comes. Think about it like that storm. It catches the disciples unprepared. Where have they located their faith? They've located their faith internally in themselves, in their own skill set. And what Paul is saying here is before that day of evil comes, you see, you notice that there's a timeline in here. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when that day of evil comes, that is, do this before you get into that place where the deck is shifting and you can't find your balance, before it's a moment of crisis, before you get there, habitually practice locating your faith in the person of Jesus and in his life and in his work. Because once you get there, of course you can learn, of course you can adjust, but what if before you get there, before that moment of crisis comes, you have habitually learned by living in community with brothers and sisters who share the same confession, coming to the table, listening to the word preached, spending time in prayer and in community with one another, spending time in service, if you have habitually learned to locate your faith in the person and work of Jesus and not your own skill set, then, yes, it's scary, and yes, it can still be disorienting, but if your location of your faith and your hope is in the person of Jesus, it feels completely different. Secondly, about, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, defensive posture. Throughout the letter to the Ephesians, Paul has been encouraging the church to go, to walk, to move through life with this great initiative and this great integrity and this thought for mission that he's calling them and he's giving them marching orders. He's giving us marching orders. But here, the analogy is turned around, and here it's defensive. Here it's standing still, standing firm. What Jesus is asking all of us ultimately 
is not to go take a hill. It's him saying to us that I've already taken the hill on your behalf, that I've overcome the powers of darkness and evil. I have told you the end of the story. Now stand firm in that. Sit still in that. Locate yourselves in a community that believes that firmly. What he is saying here is that he has, in fact, declared war on everything that's evil, that he's declared war on everything that's corrupted and corrosive about our lives and about our world and about what's going on in our own hearts. And if you're with me, what Jesus is saying is that you are going to be attacked on his behalf. But he's saying, I'm for you. I've not left you defenseless. Yes, I'm asking a lot of you. I'm conscripting you into my army. But what I want you to do is just to sit, to stand still, to locate yourself and your story in me. He's for you, and he's not left you defenseless. What has he given us? Well, Paul gives us a list. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. If you read that list, what's missing? Well, there, there's no javelins. There's no cannonballs. They didn't have cannonballs back then. But there's, there's no catapults to wage war upon the enemy. There's no slingshots to send something over to try and do damage to the enemy. It's not offensive. It's all defensive. None of these items really are a way to do anything. They're not describing disciplines to be acquired and then perfected. And once you do this, then you'll be able to stand. He is saying, no, I've already given you all of these things. They're not disciplines to be acquired, but they are gifts to be open, opened. It's, it's clothing, if you will, to become comfortable in. And yes, it seems to be ill-fitting at times and ill-suited to life because life is hard. And what he is saying is put these things on, learn to live in them, get comfortable in them, because these are the real defenses. We try our skills, we try our ingenuity, our intelligence, our bank account, all of these things feel good. They seem to fit very easily upon our own heart and our, our natural orientation, but they don't work. There's chinks in the armor that life will exploit. And what Jesus is saying is that these are the real defenses, and they don't fit perfectly when you first try them on. They don't feel as comfortable as a large bank account does, or a great intelligence, or great status in the world. It feels very different, but begin to practice wearing these clothes and focusing upon those, and focusing upon what Jesus has He has given you these things, the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. He's given you the gospel of peace. He's given you a shield of faith in him. He's given you this helmet of salvation. It's not a way, it's not a description of anything to go. He's given us the marching orders and some of the practices, but really what he's saying here is stand in these things. Rest in these things. This is the very end of the book, the letter. And this is what he's saying, is stand in these things. G.K. Chesterton, who is a writer in the 20th century, brilliant writer, funny writer, 
he says that Christians relate to evil around us in one of two ways. Either we're vertebrates or we're crustaceans. And you see, crustaceans have the skeleton on the outside. Crustaceans have this strong defense on the outside that looks formidable, but if you get through it, then they're soft and vulnerable inside. Vertebrates are exactly the opposite. They may look vulnerable. That happens a lot right during the sermon. Uh, Vertebrates are exactly the opposite. On the outside, they look vulnerable. They look like they're easy to push over, but they have this internal strength because their skeleton is on the inside, not the outside. The armor of God is the embodiment. It's the internalization. It's finding this superstructure become true of you inside, internal. And we like to be crustaceans. We like to wear armor on the outside. We like to look strong. We like to have physical things that we can touch, tangible things that look like defenses, but they're not. And what we have to learn to do is have our defenses internal, that we locate our strength, our defenses, locate what is true about us in what is true about Jesus. It is learning to hide his truth inside, to gain his righteousness, to hold on to his righteousness internally, to have peace, faith, salvation, his word to begin to bubble up inside us. And what is that truth? That is that Jesus became vulnerable for you so that you could be made safe in him. That Jesus allows himself to be defenseless. That he takes off the external defenses that he could have. And he says, evil assault instead of them. Evil do your worst to me instead of to my church. You see, he lets his guard down so that you and I can be guarded. He makes himself vulnerable so that we can be made safe. The imagery that Paul uses here is external, but in that it's not self-generated that it's something that we have to receive rather than generate on our own. When you take on these things, they're often put upon you because they're heavy. And that's the imagery, is that this breastplate, this helmet, this sword, this peace comes not out of your own strength and ingenuity and your own resources, but it's put upon you, and you're made to be safe. The armor is not defined in terms of what we do, you see, but it's defined in terms of who we are, who you are in Jesus. That's what makes you safe. That's what defends you. And yes, life can still throw some crazy things at you, but what the truth says is that Jesus ultimately will guard you and that ultimately he is waging a war against evil that will wipe away every tear And that's why we read the passage earlier in our worship service about the lion laying down with the lamb, the child playing with the viper, that this imagery of all of these dangerous things in our world will one day be no longer dangerous. And that's the truth that we guard and that we live. And so the question that we're faced with, that we're left with, is not how much faith do you have or how strong are you, Or how disciplined are you? 
But where is your faith? Where is your faith located? Not how strong are you and what defenses do you have, but how strong is Jesus and what defenses has he given to you? Two things as we've closed. I promised you a a solution. I promised you something to do. And really, it's all about what we are to be, what we are to rest in. So if there's a solution or if there's something to do, be encouraged. Be encouraged that as you look at this list, it's not a list of all of the things that you're not doing and therefore you need to go and do a better job this week at doing these things. It's in fact quite the reverse. It's be encouraged because this is all that Jesus has done for you already. And so, so stand and rest in that list. It's not your marching orders of everything that you should be doing that you should feel guilty about not doing. Rest, relax, sit, stand in who Jesus is, that he has granted you full standing. And the quote in the very front of the bulletin from James Baldwin, Giovanni's room, perhaps home is not a place, but simply an irrevocable condition. That these things are not things necessarily that you are meant to pursue, but you're meant to locate yourself in. That it's an irrevocable condition in which you are to stand. And then finally, and maybe this is anticlimactic because we want these autonomous to-do lists that once we leave church, we begin to enact what we should be doing. That we need, the, we need a list. Tell me what to do once I leave But instead, our response is, come to the table. Come and be renewed. Come along with your brothers and sisters to be made new again. To be not only reminded, but to be planted and located more firmly in what Jesus has done for you, in your union with him and your union with with your brothers and sisters. So let's pray now as we confess our faith and then come to the table. Lord, we all want something to do. We want something that we can generate on our own, that we can put in a a pretty little box and give it to you and ask you to be proud of us and ask you to love us more firmly this week because of how we've lived. And Lord, I pray that we would give up these strategies. I pray that we would give up our hopes that we can generate enough goodness so that you will love us, so that you will protect us, and so that crisis won't come in our life. Father, help us to lean more into your grace, more into your understanding of us, that we would locate ourselves in the story of the gospel and in what you have done on our behalf. Lord, if if we're here and we don't quite grasp these things, Lord, let us explore them further. Let it not just be a wall, but let it be a window into what life could be. And let us begin to come back to explore the things of Jesus more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.